In this episode, we dove really deep into medical records. I know our guests from episode one and three also involved medical records, but this guest is truly an expert in how medical records have evolved ever since the mandatory transition for providers to move from paper to electronic records. I want to thank my first guest, Raj Sharma, for connecting me with Dr. Richard Gibson. I'm very grateful to have such an engaged network in this space. Richard began his career in medicine at the University of Washington, then did his fellowship at Intermountain Healthcare in Utah. Later, he earned his PhD in medical informatics and eventually his master's in business administration from the Wharton School. His previous roles include chief of healthcare intelligence at Providence Health and Services in Renton, Washington. He was also chief information officer at Legacy Health in Portland, Oregon. He was also a research director at Gartner and currently is an affiliate assistant professor at Oregon Health and Science University. He joins this show as the executive director of the nonprofit advocacy organization, Health Record Banking Alliance, whose vision is that every consumer can own a secure, consolidated, digital lifetime health record that they may share with doctors, researchers, and others for better health and healthcare. Richard helped dissect the challenges the healthcare technology industry faces as well as explaining how consumer awareness and engagement is a key component of successful adoption. We also discussed some of the ways blockchain protocols can enable features like micropayments to incentivize patients and consumers to share data and make healthy decisions. Personal health records is a highly sought-after application in blockchain technology. There are many players in the market, and each with their own unique twists, So it's very important that these technologies know exactly what they're trying to accomplish. It's very exciting to see how things will unfold in the months and years ahead. I know this episode is a bit longer than the previous episodes, but it is definitely very engaging. And I think Richard does a nice job explaining the nuances of capturing and utilizing digital health records. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. So we have Richard Gibson. He is an executive director of Health Record Banking Alliance. The Health Record Banking Alliance, that's you know a lot to capture in, in, in one, one term. And I, I would like to introduce you as someone who has had lots of experiences, not just in medicine, but also in business and um, all over the place with technology. So I really appreciate the experiences you've had. Uh, so I'd like you to kind of talk a little bit about your background. Thank you for joining the show. Let's have a great, fun conversation today about medical records. Yes. Uh, Thank you, Ray, and thanks for inviting me to join Health Unchained. Uh, My background is as a family doctor and an emergency doctor. And then in the early 90s, I went back and retrained in what was called medical informatics, the use of computers in healthcare. And uh, when I finished that, I worked for a year for Intermountain Healthcare, who's who has done a lot of leading work in improving healthcare and healthcare quality. And then in 1996, I 
became the medical director of information services for a private healthcare system in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Oregon, called Providence Health System. And there, my job for the next 11 years was to get doctors and nurses and uh, pharmacists and therapists and dietitians to use electronic health record systems. And the point of all this was that my feeling and the feeling of the specialty is that computers could do a lot for improving care. They can keep track of all the patient details. They can keep providers from making mistakes or missing diagnosis. They can offer advice about the best treatments to use. And when, when I got out in 1995 from my uh, PhD program, I thought, well, people will have medical records in five years and then we'll start improving healthcare. Well, here we are fully 20 years later and right. finally, healthcare records are widely used within health systems and within physician offices, but we've only just started uh, to try to improve healthcare. And frankly, so far, we've done very little. So we spent billions of dollars of money to buy electronic health records, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to buy health records, but we really haven't improved healthcare yet. But all is not lost. It's a complicated area, and, uh, and we're on our way. And it's really interesting how that happens with technology, you expect something to happen much sooner than it actually does. But then once it does happen, you think, wow, that was really quick. How did it all just affect the entire society so quickly? It's, it's quite fascinating. I thought about like 3D printing in that way about 10, 15 years ago. I was like, oh, 3D printing is going to change the world. But again, there are so many levels yeah. of change required in order for you know, people to change as well as the technology has to improve to a level where it's reliable and you can scale right. it. So that's what's kind of cool about right now. I feel like we're getting towards the end of this curve, you can say, of um, not just adoption, but also development. Can you talk a little bit about how Health Record Banking Alliance, you know, HR, BA, how do you guys create membership or create a consortium of uh, companies or organizations to help uh, improve and send this message out? What do you guys do? HRBA, Health Record Banking Alliance, was founded in 2006 as a 503c6 business alliance. And it's, it's a nonprofit who has been advocating, educating, and discussing personal health records or health record banks for 12 years. So I'm going to use the terms health record bank and personal health records interchangeably. There are a number of terms that have been used to describe this area, and we can talk about that if that's of interest to your listeners. But the, uh, the Health Record Banking Alliance is supported by membership dues from individual members from small companies and some corporations who want to promote the idea of each consumer having their own comprehensive lifetime unified health record, which initially would be collected from all the providers that they see or have seen in the past. What technology is used to share that information? So we don't uh, have any technology ourselves. We're not developing products ourselves. Frankly, we're closer to a think tank. Uh, From what I understand, advocacy. right, I, yeah. I get that. But what I'm thinking yeah. about is how, I'm sure you understand how right. your other organizations are working. Right. Do you, can, what are some statistics you've seen, I guess is the question. So electronic health records now since the High Tech Act uh, and the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009 and 10, electronic health records are widespread in the provider community. But to date, 
patients and consumers have not had much access to their records. One benefit of all this money spent on electronic health records is now that most providers do offer their patients what we'll call a portal, a portal tethered to the underlying health record, so that if you see someone at a university or even a physician in a private office, you can sign on with a given login and password to their portal to their record. The challenge is if you have multiple providers that you have multiple portals. And the idea of a personal health record is to pull all those data together in one place so that you're in control of all your records and you can ultimately control who sees them and then you can even give your data uh, to research either for free or, or for some compensation if you wish. So it's the idea of taking all the data from all your multiple providers uh, and putting it in one place. I totally agree. I think that the theory behind Achieving that is great. And I think that's something right. a lot of people right. all share. Why do you think it's taking so long? A number of issues. We have technology issues. We have consumer uh, request issues or consumer interest issues. Uh, and then we have uh, issues about permissioning and privacy and all. Let, let's take them one at a time. Sure. Until we had electronic health records, most most healthcare records are on paper. So you're dealing with faxing or with scanning or with copying and sending those around. So by and large, that's gone. So now we have electronic health records in most provider offices. Okay, so that's good. Uh, so we do have an electronic basis for records now, but the standards for sending records from one organization to another are, we have emerging international standards, but it's taking a long time to get electronic health record vendors and providers to use those standards. But by and large, they are in place, and we can discuss that in more technical detail if you wish. So that was necessary. One of the challenges with the standards is there's a lot of optionality in the standards. And so people don't have to fill out certain fields or they use different fields differently, which means that if you have a standard that's optional, it's not a very good standard. Just like if you had a train track, so well, the, the width between the rails can be this or it could be this. It's not really so much of a standard. Uh, so uh, but by and large, we're, we're achieving uh, consensus on transfer standards for healthcare records. The second thing is, is I don't think to date there's been a big drive for consumers managing their healthcare data. I think there's a number of reasons for this. Number one is it's not particularly interesting. Uh, if you're lucky enough to be generally well, it's not particularly interesting to you. If you get sick, or more importantly, if your parent gets sick, or your child gets sick and you have to shuttle them around among doctors, then all of a sudden you're thrust into being sort of their family caregiver and holder of the records for your loved one. And there you're scrambling about and then you really start to get frustrated about how in 2018, how difficult it is to get your records. So that the challenge of consumer demand is still there. And uh, it's not like your bank account where it can do something for you. Your health records, until you really need it, really can't do anything or don't do a lot for you yet. But I think that as consumers, as the, the ability to download your record gets easier, and we'll talk about Apple Health and companies that do that, and as I think that people get used to being more in charge of their health care. Remember, healthcare hasn't been very consumer friendly. And that's another reason is they pretty much say, hey, patient, we'll take care of you. You don't need to manage your records. We'll do it all for you. Well, that's fine, but it's more complex than that. And more cost is being shifted to consumers and family. More care is being shifted to consumers and family. And 
uh, sometimes medical errors are made and people have questions about their diagnosis. You have internet reference now. That, so people need their records, but consumer demand hasn't been there. Part of that is the ease. And I think with Apple Health making it so easy to get your records, I think that because of their broad um, consumer facing applications, I think that this is going to change the game, not just because not just only Apple, but the fact is that Apple makes it easy to get on top of your records. Right. One more, one more thing, and then I'll sure. get back to you, Ray, is that especially now with general uh, data protection regulations in Europe, GDPR, and with all the challenges with Facebook and, uh, and, and, and others with privacy, that needs to come to the fore, too. And there, it may be that people are uncomfortable sharing their data, but an article just released in New England Journal of Medicine this week shows that people that are involved in research really don't have that many privacy concerns as long as the basics are covered, that their employer doesn't know, that their data are not generally freely available on the Internet, that they'll be used for useful purposes. I, I think we can get beyond that. So it's a mixture of ease of use and consumer awareness and consumer demand. What methods would be best used to actually incentivize consumers to care more about their health right now? And can you show them what it'll pay out in the future with examples? Yeah, I think there's several ways. Number one is if it's not you, meaning if it's someone in your family, like your parent or your child, and you're the caregiver, it can be a direct benefit to you and your loved one to help put their records together. So when you go see the next provider or when they're transferred facilities, say, oh, I've got all my records in place. Or when someone asks you something you don't know the answer to or asks your loved one who may not be able to respond, you can call it up on your phone. So, yeah, we already did that study and this is what it showed and show the provider. So that creates immediate benefit. Another thing that will create a benefit in the future is apps that are written against your data. So far, I don't think there's anything that's really compelling about that with your personal health records. But I don't think it's too hard to imagine that if you had an iPhone app or an Android app that looked at your personal medical records over a lifetime, that looked at your habits, how much you sleep, what you eat, your activity level, your stress, looked at maybe some device data. Uh, from your heart rate, uh, blood pressure, blood sugar, other hormones that perhaps will be tracked in the future. Look at your So your that's an interesting you say other yeah. hormones. Like I, I would like to go into like that far sure. deep into the technology. I think it's very interesting. So you imagine a device that or some sort of like patch on your body that right. can have right. nano wires to pull blood from right. and then it'll right. tell you exactly in real time how much your how your hormone levels are fluctuating right. during the day. Right. I would love that. If I had a banana for example yeah. And I knew exactly the milligrams right. of potassium that I ingested right. and then see the effects of that with my energy levels, for example, or just right. exactly. health levels. It's exactly. But I think consumers don't care maybe at this point to manage, own, hold that because it just takes so much time. It's right. they're healthy, as you're saying. So how do we do right. it? Like, to, how do you make a millennial who's healthy, for example, right. interested? How can you give them a well, more immediate... I think there are a few ways in uh, my oldest, uh, our oldest daughter is 35. She just had a baby, our first grandchild, uh, granddaughter. And I just don't think that as her, her daughter starts getting her immunizations that she's going to keep record of those immunizations on the hokey little paper form that we did when we were growing up and we did for, for her when she was a child. So I think that as, as uh, millennials start to take care of their family, they're going to say, what's a better way to keep track of not just immunizations, which all uh, well children presumably would get, but then other, they collect x-rays or camp physicals. I think they're going to say, isn't there an app to do this? And so I think that's going to bring interest. 
I think as people encounter their own uh, performance, uh, and the reason I brought up hormones is, I mean, how many of us have felt sleepy uh, during the day? Or you're trying to get something done, you're trying to read and you get sleepy. That's been a big problem for me. And so the question is, well, am I not getting enough sleep? Or did I eat a, uh, a meal that had a high glycemic index, raised my blood sugar, my insulin came out and lowered my blood sugar, and that drop in blood sugar produces sleepiness? Is it that um, my sleep-wake cycle is a little disturbed? In the future, we're going to have biometric devices at home, and then they're going to give you that advice. And I think that will be compelling to say for people that are interested in optimizing their performance and taking care of themselves. And I realize that not everybody has that privilege to spend that much time taking care of themselves. But over time, I think that uh, we can expect these to be part of the tools that we have. And that combined with your personal health records, I think, could be quite compelling. In the past, we said... Uh, get enough sleep, don't smoke, exercise, don't have too much stress, don't overeat, don't overdrink. Right. That, and that's great advice and it still applies, but I can see down the road an app that says, well, Richard, you know, based on your medical records and what you, your prior lab tests and your family history and your genomics and your, med, uh, and your microbiome, uh, we, we have some particular advice for you that could keep you out of the emergency department now or could help you sleep better with minimal uh, change in your routine. Uh, that would be compelling and people might get involved. So I think there's several ways. And one more thing I'll say on this, Ray, is, and I don't know whether this is very good for, uh, for consumers or not, but many of us have the opportunity and the privilege to buy insurance by car insurance, health insurance, home insurance. And it's not particularly exciting, but we want to know we're covered. If we're so, it would be easy enough to say, okay, if you think there's value in collecting my health records, let's just be once and done. I go to a provider, I show them a QR code, my records just compile. If I never need them, fine. They're collecting in my bank account. And if I ever do show up in an emergency department in Mexico on a trip, I know that all my records are there. So we might be able to interest consumers in buying insurance, but you know, you bring up insurance and people's eyes get kind of slopey. No one wants to talk about insurance but it could be if we made it so easy to collect your records we might be able to sell it on that platform so i'm open about ways uh to to sell this idea to consumers yeah no totally lots of great ideas you have and i think that you know just speaking of the last idea you had about insurance i think yeah. that is a broken system the yeah. pricing structure in the marketplace is all kind of broken the way we purchase things it's not transparent i was wondering if you can uh you know relate that also to uh, a little bit about how a, we, we need a more trusted network or right. some sort of trusted yeah. environment to right. work in, not silos. Uh, yeah, tell me more about where you're going with that. I, I, so okay. so I think I, I would like to introduce the concept of like using blockchain uh, right. technology right. Uh, and having these individual organizations or companies or whatever have you part of a, a, a node network so that they're sharing all the information and it's all on each of their um, you know, right. sites, or at least the, right. the access to permission, that code is all decentralized and managed by yeah. a, a, all the parties at once without anyone having full control. And each individual consumer can come in and right. actually move around wherever they want without having to worry about, right. is, are they going to be okay with what I'm doing kind of thing? No, I think that's entirely consistent with where we're going at the Health Record Banking Alliance. We don't pick 
particular technologies, we have principles and then evaluate technologies to how well they uh, observe those principles. And our principles are that each person has the complete lifetime unified comprehensive health record and that each person knows who's looking at their record and that there's an audit log so they can see who's looked at their record and that uh, consumers have control over who looks at their record. And I think blockchain can offer that. Uh, so we are actively following blockchain applications. I don't think it's the only way to go about it, but I think there are some very useful aspects there. I think the main thing that patients want to know is that one, their data are secure and they're not just being used willy-nilly for other people to make money off without their knowledge or control. Number two, that they're available to others, other family caregivers or family members or friends if they need it. Number three, that they're available to other providers when they need it in a format that's useful to the provider. Uh, and number four, if they decide to take it back saying, I'm done with this, I want to take my money back or uh, my data back, or I want to move it to another application, that it's as easy as moving a, a 401k or a retirement plan. Now, maybe some people say, well, gee, that's not very easy. But by and large, you can do most of that on the Internet, maybe a phone call or two, and you move all your um, your your retirement plan or 401k or whatever you're privileged enough to have to another site. I think people want that. So I don't think people are particularly demanding about it, but I think they just want the basics and uh, blockchain could help with that. It's not the only way I think, but it could sure help. I agree. It's not going to be just blockchain. It's going to be right. uh, a whole assortment of different technologies, particularly uh, medical devices are improving so quickly right. uh, that you you have this stuff at home that's measuring your vitals and whatnot. There is one other thing where blockchain has a remarkable advantage in this area, and that is on the area of what we do to keep or to gain and maintain our health, if, if we're lucky enough to have that from the get-go. And that is, as we know, a lot of chronic health conditions depend on our behavior. In fact, the very largest part of, of, of our health and our health outcomes depend on our behavior and our socioeconomic status, some of which we are, are born into and some of which we can change depending on our behavior. But it's bigger than genomics. Uh, it's bigger than medications. It's bigger, bigger than the effect of, medic, um, of, of medication and health treatment in general. And so if we're going to stay healthy, we need to be in control of our behavior. And with blockchain now, especially with blockchain in your records, if we're taking care of ourselves, there's a, block, a blockchain use for micropayments to say, this is this is helpful behavior. Long run, it'll benefit your health. But in the short term, it could lower your cost by micropayments to your blockchain account. So uh, we're just beginning to get into that. Not everybody's going to respond to that, but I think it's a, it's a valuable area to take a look at and we'll have use in the future. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So some of the guests that I've talked to, they have, you know, they're building actually medical records using the blockchain right. and they have these incentives where instead of using, for example, uh, the U.S. dollar to purchase um, a telehealth consulting service, right. you can use a token that right. would be more beneficial to you at the moment because you'll have the price a little bit lower and you can build right. out pricing models that way. As well as, you know, in the long run, it feels like an investment, especially if there is some sort of appreciation in those tokens. Right. But that's, you know, it's, it's hard to do right now. It's hard to really sure. put together. I, I wonder, like, how much, how many conversations you've had regarding regulatory standards a little bit more. We are involved with uh, helping produce policy at the national level. It's not really on the issue of the regulation uh, of something that's going to constrain the use of it. It's more on helping uh, federal regulations promote the use of 
people's own data, whether it be in blockchain or uh, non-blockchain associated accounts. I think that the main issue is that people just have had difficulty getting their records. And so we have worked a lot on uh, trying to advise federal policymakers on how to create policies that allow consumers to get their record more easily, uh, be it in blockchain or stored in blockchain or some other app. And, And the privacy issue There's a lot of federal regulation about providers and payers, meaning insurance companies managing your data. They're so-called, they have special rules called HIPAA, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, uh, that they have to respond to. But once the consumer has their data, then uh, really there's not many rules about that now. I think GDPR has as much effect on those as, as anything else. So we don't have much constraining regulation on personal health records. Now, if you start giving a lot of advice based on your records, well, then that gets over into the whole FDA thing about can you have devices or apps that dispense medical advice? And so you have to be very careful there. The FDA watches that very closely because we don't want people getting hurt by apps that have been insufficiently uh, uh, investigated or worked up, or we don't want people ignoring something significant because an app says, oh, don't worry about that little brown spot on your skin. It's nothing. And then it turns out to be something bad. So uh, regulation, I don't think is our big problem right now. I think mostly it's people getting access to their data. That's a bigger problem. Absolutely. I think it's interesting when we talk, think about genetics, especially because that data uh, is, is so you know personal to us and it's so uh, something that we want to understand, we want to achieve. So if there's a test and we take it and it tells us we have some sort of condition, but actually you know, we, there was a certain pr- probability right. and we didn't actually right. have it, but we created or we performed some actions and it might have hurt us. We can. That's why the FDA does play that crucial role. I would like to see you know more of that continue and more interactions with technology companies and scientists and providers. I think that's they're all really important to be in the conversation. Which stakeholders do you think within this environment are not most important, but they have a lot of weight? Sure. Uh, Clearly, the most important is the patient, the consumer and their family, uh, less so their friends, but especially family caregivers, those that are involved in the care of a given person. Uh, So that's most important. That's what this is all about. Other people that have a stake in it are certainly providers, though. And there, I, when I use the word provider, I'm talking broadly, not just physicians, but uh, other people that see the patient could be uh, uh, social workers or psychologists or community uh, worker personnel that are helping the person get through whatever challenge they have. So I'm using that broadly. They care because making those data available to the consumer and family will have an impact on how they manage their records. And also typically providers are getting their electronic health records and equivalent uh, from a vendor. So the vendor is another stakeholder, vendor of software that providers use to maintain their records. They care because if the government makes regulations or consumers make demand, we hope it's more the latter than the former, that uh, vendors are going to have to respond with software that works. I think that people that pay for health care are, are interested. That means not only payers, the insurance companies, but also purchasers, meaning in, for 60% of people, that means their employer. They want to make sure that whatever we're doing with these records doesn't raise costs, and I totally get that. I think in the long run, they're lower costs, but a lot of things have been promised to lower costs, and they haven't done it yet. So I think that those are the stakeholders, and uh, I think we're going to see a little tug of war there about who gets to manage the data. I don't believe that it's right or just 
for us to live in a society that has so much benefit for people at the top, and yet people that don't have those privileges are threatened. Uh, they're just one broken ankle or one appendicitis away from financial ruin. I mean, more than 50% of personal bankruptcies occur because of medical costs. And it's not because someone gets a really bad uh, life-altering diagnosis of like cancer. I mean, just $12,500 is the typical debt or the average debt of what puts, sends people into bank, personal bankruptcy. So that it goes without saying, I think, with me that everybody needs to be covered for health care. So in addition to worrying about your body and your ability to survive, you can't worry that if you get sick, you're going to be financially destitute or your family's going to be financially destitute. That just isn't just, and we need to work against that. That said, of course, there are a lot of people out there who don't have health insurance, and that that's not okay. And one way that personal health records can help with that is that if we move employers or we move off an employer on a private plate plan, maybe from the affordable health care plans online, that you need to have all your records and they can't be tied up in some place you can't get to them. So another major advantage of having your health records is if you have to move states, move jobs, move providers, move insurance, your record's already with you. And, and so I think that having your personal health record helps you maintain your health. But obviously, there's bigger problems. If you don't have health insurance or some way to uh, help pay for these things that are beyond almost any of us to pay for when they happen, yeah, provider health, having your personal health records is of secondary importance if you don't have health insurance or something to help cover the cost. How, how valuable do you think that the data that can be collected from a person who's experiencing a horrible right. condition, going through many tests right. and surgeries, right. Right. Do you think the data that can be collected there could pay, like just pay for the actual procedure or uh, therapies? I thought where you're going to go, Ray, was could the value of your data pay for your personal health record? And the answer for that is absolutely yes. We've talked about the various factors that influence health outcomes. And number one among that, uh, among those is your personal behavior. But there's also environmental risk and toxins that are, we're exposed to. And there's also the genetics that, uh, at least until recently, they were given. You can't pick your parents. Uh, it could be that we can change our genes down the road and avoid some unpleasant um, disease outcomes. But... Uh, your personal behaviors at the top. That said, yes, if we if everybody came out with uh, great genes that didn't have any significant diseases, proclivities in there, and everybody took care of themselves and got enough slept, sleep and ate well and uh, exercised and had good relationships with others and a just society without violence and adequate education, even superior education, and everybody's looking out for each other, yeah, we wouldn't need as much health care. And that's a whole nother discussion for a whole nother podcast for you, I'm sure. But even if you're healthy as a young person, you know, you ride a bike, you can fall over, you can get pretty messed up on a bike. Um, or you, you just get a bad diagnosis um, that wasn't your fault. It, it had, had no relationship to, to your behavior. So this idea that, well, I don't need insurance because I'm healthy, you know, I don't really buy that. Uh, I know people say that. Why well, don't use doctors? And I was, well, yeah, who wants to use doctors? We want health. We don't want to use health care. But you never know what's around the corner. And that's why we have the concept of insurance. So I just think that in the future, you're going to have more and more costs put on you, at least in the United States, until we change our health policy. Again, that's a whole nother health uh, podcast for you. But until we change our policy, more of the costs being put on the consumer. And you could use your personal health record combined with the intelligence on the Internet to do a lot of self-treatment. I'm not saying you should become your own doctor, your own surgeon, but you could make decisions 
um, and you could use resources wisely that would keep your own costs down and having your records, especially if you do, do telemedicine. Let's say that I am traveling in another state and it's sun, Saturday night, 11 p.m. and I think something's going on with me. I get on a telemedicine. Now I'm dealing with the provider in another part of the world, perhaps. And now they have access to my entire record if they want to do it. You couldn't do that without a personal health record, regardless of what your insurance is. So. I think people should have some way to cover their health care or live in a society where that's a right of being a citizen. That's what I would aspire to. But again, that's a political issue. But second, then, if you have that covered is get your records together. You never know when it's going to be able to help you. So there was a statistic I saw online about human data and how large the marketplace uh, is. And uh, the number was 150 billion to 200 billion annually. How do you think that will change? And do you think that it's going to remain on a system similar to uh, what we have in fiat currencies, for example? Or do you think potentially we will go into this like tokenomics environment where people are trading their data, but instead of collecting it in U.S. dollar or um, you know British pound or something, they're going to collect it in a particular token? Uh, yeah, again, not my area of expertise. Uh, I think that uh, uh, I think there's. We, we've seen great value from token uh, currencies that they can eliminate a lot of cost and they can make a technology. I mean, a lot of people around our country and in the world don't have access to banking. And yet uh, having token currencies give them access to banking that they never had. Before. So that's so one of the reasons I actually yeah. sorry to interrupt. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I actually yeah. liked your um, <laughs> the name of this organization. It's the Health Record right. Banking Alliance. Uh, so yeah. I think that's um, very interesting because it implies many types of um practices and i'd yeah. like you to just comment on that i'm sure, sure. it was a thought out the, thing the, the derivation of that name uh and we did not invent it it was uh, it was first promoted i think in 1994 as a name but the idea is that like a checking account that a health record bank account would take deposits you'd make deposits of your records as you go see people that uh, help you manage your conditions and you put them in the bank and that you control, like you write a check, control, I mean, I realize writing a check is old style, but like on a, um, using an app to move money around, you use an app to move your data around to someone else who needs to see it. So there the comparison with the bank is good. Um, presumably other people can use your data with your permission uh, and, and that helps pay, pay you back or, and again, that can be in a token currency. But I think that's the idea of, of calling it a health record bank. It takes deposits and then you control who gets access to the deposits and use it in a way that benefits you. Uh, of course, we didn't predict that banks were going to uh, come under some disrepute uh, recently, what with the Wells Fargo scandals and all. But so there's no perfect name. Um, but that's that's health. Uh, that's the thing about health banking. But I think now that personal behavior is so important to your health, I think that the idea of actually getting paid for your behavior and your data with your permission, I think is is viable. And I think it's probably easier to, to do with micro payments using a token um, currency than with the credit card payments. Uh, I mean, right now, if you go into a store, my understanding is they pay a fixed fee, even if you only put two dollars on your credit card or three or four dollars for coffee drink or whatever so that micro payments without that overhead could could flourish and and the idea of multiple very small transactions adding up into something of greater value i think micro currencies are good on that so uh, i i think there's a possibility for that and also uh, micro the blockchain i think is great for saying you have permission to look at my lab results for a given period of time and do that through smart contracts built in the blockchain i think that makes a lot of sense i think 
Another thing that blockchain makes a lot of sense in healthcare is that you can't store your whole records in blockchain because they're too big, but you can store a hash, I mean, a, a certificate or a hash of all your records so that someone coming in a, a month later can say, yes, this hash compares to the hash at the time it was stored. So I know that that record has not been tampered and I can count on it. Um, and also it has a, a sequence of time and date about who saw the person most recently um, and then my permissions about who can use it then come into play. So I think blockchain has a lot of value in the microcurrencies. Just make it say you want value. You, you want my data. What do you give me for it? Uh, if I agree with your purposes of the use of the data, uh, then you can have access. And then I get compensated. So I think there's a lot could be done there. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. On June 4th, Apple announced that it opened up its Health Record API, or Application Programming Interface, to developers so that they can build third-party apps that can easily and securely pull health record data directly from Apple users, with their permission, of course. Apple's Chief Operating Officer, Jeff Williams, stated, Medical information may be the most important personal information to a consumer. And offering access to health records was the first step in empowering them. Now, with the potential of health records information paired with HealthKit data, patients are on the path to receiving a holistic view of their health. So some of the areas of interest for new applications include medication tracking, disease management, nutrition planning, and medical research, giving researchers more comprehensive data. It'll be interesting to see how blockchain companies in healthcare can actually leverage Apple's API and also leverage the user's health data to develop their own apps and tools. And now back to our conversation with Dr. Richard Gibson. Right, and then there's always like the potential conversation of is, would it be a private or public blockchain? So that depends on how they want to set it up. And I feel like for healthcare particularly, what I've seen is both sides of the, the coin. There's uh, companies building on uh, Hyperledger, for example, and then still using ERC20 tokens to manage their um, the t their token marketplace. Uh, I believe that also it ap or applies with other technologies as well. For example, artificial intelligence. Which bot, for would for example, would you want to see your data? Yeah, I'm not an expert in artificial intelligence, but from what I, but I keep track of it because it's one of the reasons that got me into looking about health records because I was a family doc and I was concerned that. I was, I was there was always a, a little bit of anxiety in the back of my mind that I was missing the, an important diagnosis. Uh, uh, and I couldn't really live with the idea that uh, a person was counting on me and that there was a chance that they could go home with the wrong diagnosis. And it still exists, unfortunately. Uh, articles vary, but probably uh, 10 to 15 percent of the time you're getting the wrong diagnosis. And that's very unsettling. So the idea, could the computer help? And I think that artificial intelligence can help with that. I think that we, as you pointed out, Ray, we got to be careful. Uh, I mean, we know the, the story about uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning predicting who needs uh, to be uh, have bail set and at what amount. And that what happened was that uh, people of color were uh, more frequently targeted to have bail, especially bail that they couldn't afford. And so... By not understanding how the black box of AI works and just accepting its output, there's a risk there, too. So 
I think that it's a balance. Be- I want the human in the loop, especially in healthcare. I always want uh, a knowledgeable person in the loop along with the consumer and the patient and seeing what value is there for artificial intelligence. But I'd, I'd be wary about just saying, oh, let the computer handle it because you just don't know the biases that are in there, not just because the algorithm may be poorly or inappropriately constructed, but what data were the, uh, was the uh, machine learning exposed to before uh, as it was constructing its algorithm. So, and we know that a lot of times people of color and uh, underprivileged folks are not in the databases that are being used to train algorithms. And so uh, they can be disadvantaged by the use of those algorithms. So we got to be careful about having a human in the loop say, is that recommendation reasonable? I think it's helpful, especially while we're feeling uh, our way forward in artificial intelligence and healthcare. Right. And if the, the data isn't you know, created or delivered in a structured way or in a way that right. understands it properly, it creates like different you know, perceptions of the, its world and potentially oh. it'll, as you said, cause problems. Well, that's that's a big issue there, because I would say that a huge part and maybe this is what's different from other science or uh, purchasing retail purchasing on the Internet or whether that a lot of our data are not structured in healthcare. Uh, and, and that's a problem. Um, it, it's, and, and that's why there's so much text in healthcare. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've had trouble loosening up healthcare, uh, sending data around, because a lot of it's in unstructured text from providers rendering an opinion or observing the patient, then writing or dictating what the, or in looking at an x-ray and saying, I think this x-ray suggests this or this or the MR or the CT or whatever it is. Uh, so sure, you have a sodium level or potassium level or a blood count that's numeric and it's deterministic, but a lot of the data in healthcare are not deterministic. They're free text, uh, they're shades of gray, they're a patient story. And I think over time, AI with natural language processing can uh, to, can draw from that. But again, I want a human in in there because it can it can go awry. And again, not my area of expertise, but I'm aware enough of artificial intelligence. You got to be careful about the output when the black box. It's not itself. Uh, uh, you can't investigate the black box. That's why they call it a black box. So a lot of a lot of data in healthcare are free text and not structured. So that's that's a given. So you said a few times that that wasn't the you know t- like your main focus of right. research. What what is would you say your main focus? Well, of my background has been in electronic health records in the provider setting. Right. And we've, and, and we've, uh, uh, I think trying that's... to open up those records for consumers. And so uh, I'm aware of electronic health records and the pros and cons and difficulty. But when I started this, we didn't have artificial intelligence and widespread use in healthcare. And now it's starting to come down the line. So I, I follow the field, but uh, I'm not an expert in it. So tell me a little bit about the beginning, the start, actually. It'd be interesting to see how things have changed from that perspective. The so start of? Let's say when the norm was paper records. Yeah. Yeah. So I got a good story about that. So in 1984, I finished my family medicine residency uh, uh, in Spokane, Washington. And then I owed the National Health Service a couple of years for paying for medical school. So I went to an underserved area, uh, which was in a place called Forks, Washington. And uh, uh, it's it's where they filmed Twilight now. Then it was the center of the logging uh, world for the United States uh, there on the Western Olympic Peninsula, west of Seattle. When I came to town, uh, I went to see a doctor who was retiring, and he said, well, I've referred a patient to you. She's going to have a baby in a few uh, in a few months. I said, great, love to see you. Can you send me her records? And he says, I'll get it for you. We were in his office. He goes and he grabs a five by seven index card filled out front and back. The front side had 
her birth, mother's birth 20 years ago with her birth weight. And then there was a line on this five by seven, a line for every visit, you know, uh, sore throat, uh, red eye, uh, ankle sprain, abdominal pain. And then it says um, on the back of the card at the bottom, it, it had the date. And it said part of the pregnancy test referred to Dr. Gibson. I mean, this is 34 years ago, her entire medical record on the front and the back of a five by seven card. Oh, my gosh. Wouldn't doctors like to go back to those days where it's all about paying attention to the to the patient and having minimal records? I mean, adequate for the for the time. But that just isn't how we do it anymore. And we can talk about whether we want it that way. But that's where we came from. That was the minimal, most basic medical record that moved things along. Now the world's more complicated. So now we want to get back to the idea. And where I'm seeing this going, Ray, is that now you come to see me. And right now I'm fussing around with the, the computer trying to take down your history. And you say, is, is Dr. Gibson listening to me or is he more concerned about the computer? And I think the computer is getting in the way. But just advance just a little while longer. We have microphones hanging from the room. The patient is aware of what's going on and, and, and who's seeing their record. And meanwhile, there's a voice recording that uh, being made of the interaction. And I don't have to deal with the computer at all except to look with the patient. I'm sitting side by side with the patient who's looking at the screen say, here's what I have for your medications. Does that sound right to you? Let's look at the your blood sugars over time or your blood pressure over time. But I don't touch the keyboard. I just talk to it. Meanwhile, the whole visit's being documented uh, on the computer without me having to type in it. That is getting back to that eight five by seven card, uh, but has better documentation in the computer saying, hey, well, Dr. Gibson, you know, she mentioned that uh, this and this happened in the past. Which, you want me to look this up or give you some advice on that? And, and this is all done in a very supportive, professional way. And, and then she, uh, she goes home, he or she, whoever the patient is, and I know that there's been no errors. Uh, and then I can feel safe and I can spend all my time interacting with their needs and their concern. And if I see a worried look on his face, I can say, well, uh, what are you worried about? Let's talk about that. Maybe I can ease that burden or we can do something else. Uh, another way I see that happening, Ray, is patients more than anything else want to get the diagnosis right. Now, they trust their provider to do that. But if I told them, I say, uh, John, would you please interact with your computer at home? I just wanted to ask you a few questions before a visit tomorrow. What patient wouldn't do that? I mean, if you had any amount of time, you'd sit there in front of the computer and it'd ask you all these questions. And right now, doctors have to do that in the office. And sometimes they short circuit it and they make their, their rule of thumb or heuristic to the diagnosis a little too quickly and they can miss stuff. Whereas if the person puts in all the history and the computer is asking them for more detailed history, we can begin to collect some of the facts before they even see them. So what I'm seeing is a bridge from how it used to be, which I think doctors and patients liked, going through this uncomfortable thing where clearly doctors don't like their electronic health record to the future, which is back just to the human-to-human -human interaction. But meanwhile, the computer is helping to make sure nothing's missed and that a careful record is being compiled. So I'm optimistic, as you see. Yeah, absolutely. I, can, I think I'm in yeah. the same boat as you, and yeah. I do see that happening. And there's so yeah. many ways that it could happen. Yeah. You know, you said that there could be microphones coming from yeah. the 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 ceiling, but you know, right. I can imagine maybe a third person, some sort of actual uh, bot or some sort of physical right. entity yeah. that maybe the person feels comfortable with, or a face the face of a loved one for that maybe elderly yeah. uh, patient that really needs more support barely, right. you know? So I think that there's lots of ways to do it. And that's the exciting part, right? Because you have lots part. of new uh, incumbents, incumbents coming in, trying to think of new business models and using new 
you know, marketing strategies in order to get the word out. Because now there's, you know, we communicate in a, such a different way and form uh, back, you know, compared to ten, even twenty years ago. It's there's a huge difference right. with the way we communicate over the internet, and that's continuing to improve. And telemedicine, as you said, is going to be, you know, that could be a great application because now you don't have to even go to the office like you're saying you can there's, there's no ceilings you just record it straight from the phone um and that's where i also saw like the bot can be in place in a person's home it's it's really interesting the way things are going it's it's exciting yeah. and I, I wonder like whatever you're what are you seeing in terms of the opportunities for people to build are, are there maybe scholarships or are there grants or is it something that people have to raise money for? Is there a lot of money in healthcare? I mean, you know, from what I've seen, <laughs> you know the answer to that. Yeah. So I mean, it's 20% of our economy now in the U S and I would say that it's not delivering particularly good uh, outcomes. If we look at money spent in the U S and money spent in the developed European countries, if we look at money spent on healthcare plus money spent on social care, so healthcare and social care. By social care, I mean social programs to keep people housed, adequate transportation, child care, education, all that sort. If we look at U.S. versus developed European countries, we both spend close about the same per person on healthcare and social care. But in the U.S., it's mostly healthcare and very little social care. And in in Europe, it's more social care than healthcare. And uh, and I would say that their their outcomes are better. Uh, we're 35th in terms of infant mortality. And with a country with as many resources as the U.S., that just isn't right. We're spending way more than anybody else in the world per person on health care. And I would say our outcomes are not that great. So that the idea of creating a more just society where people get the benefits of the money spent. Uh, and right now, I believe healthcare has taken all the money on, off the table. All the increases in healthcare costs have taken away most of the productivity, increased productivity the last 30 years that people working in jobs have done. So they haven't had their wages rise. So uh, the point I'm trying to make is we need to use these healthcare data to say what Healthcare interventions, what drugs, what procedures, what diagnostic interventions are important and produce a superior outcome. And then we need to say, you know, if, it, if there isn't documented evidence, this is helpful. We're not going to get it. We're not going to pay for it. There are some people think more healthcare is better. I tend to think just the opposite. Less healthcare is better, but the basics got to be there. Um, and, and trying to think that you can fix health, you can keep a person well by doing more health care when they don't have a stable place to live. They don't have a stable source of income either by employment or by uh, disability. So you're talking about providing those uh, basic yeah. needs. And does that interfere? So that's a societal choice that we have to make, for right. example. That's right. more socialist, of, right. right? I'm not trying to make this a political conversation, but. No, it isn't. Uh, right. And it, that's just what it is. And I think that. Right. Um, if we do it right, we can develop because I don't think there is like a form that's an extreme, right? Socialism right. Is, can be an extreme as well as um, right. conservatism. It's very uh, open ended. I think what we're trying to right. do now is find that balance. Right. And the difficult part right. is that there's so many fast moving technologies and conversations and deals and data, new data getting generated and people working on this, that there's clashes and it's just we haven't been able to form. And I don't think, you know, It'll always be a, a constant chaos, but you know I think that we're getting a lot better at organizing that chaos, and you know putting you know records, for example, uh, is a huge, huge um, application of that. So, yeah, the the way the way I look at it is that 
the most important thing is that people have a chance to live uh, uh, the best life they can live. And by best, I mean the free from uh, free from illness, free from disease, free from disability to live as long as um, um, some higher power if, uh, uh, believes that you're going to live. But the, I, the point is, is that we don't want health care. We want health. And I think right. that it. And, and that although health records aren't the most important thing, the most important thing is the health of, of, of people in sure. a country or in a region. I think that healthcare records with AI and with the increased consumerization of healthcare and with increased costs that U.S. consumers now bear for healthcare, I think health records are important. I think they're very important. And right now they don't have much of the patient, they don't have much consumer awareness. And we hope to get that out there. I think if a compelling app came along, and you could actually do something significant about a condition that you might have or you might have in the future, I think then people would say, well, how do I, what do I need to do to run that app? I say, well, you need your records. Well, how do I get my records? And then one thing leads to another, and then it comes about. And I think that's going to happen. And I think by Apple Health just making it easier, I think it's more likely to come about. I agree. I think that once, you know, Apple, especially since they have such a you know broad reach in the marketplace but i also think you know android is coming up with uh, you know there's a there's marketplaces everywhere i think that uh the you know blockchain yeah community is also developing there's so many applications and companies working on this uh but you brought up an interesting point about um sort of making decisions about your permissions but also making decisions about you know what kind of procedures you'd like to have right. or maybe right. even if we can discuss a little bit about end of sure. life care I absolutely that's i think one of you know my mo- very it's a very interesting conversation because yes i don't fi- i don't think it's definitive and it's always open-ended what do you think about how we as in america how we deal with end of life care so we know that a huge amount of Medicare spending, I, I can't recall the exact percentage, it's on the order 20, 25% is spent in the last six months of life. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but I think that society needs to have uh, some choice in that. And I think we've all had a family member who might have been on one side or the other of the doctor about grandma or grandfather uh, in terms of be how aggressive to be. And uh, maybe it went with grandma's wish or grandfather's wish, or maybe it went against them. But I think the point is, is that we all have preferences for our life, for our death, although maybe it's not something in this country we're used to talking about. I think we need to have that conversation so that we craft our death as well as we try to craft our life. And I don't mean to go dark or, or deep here. It's just saying uh, if you ask most people and you got you were late, you're able to allay their concern about the topic. And he got down to it and said, no, I don't want to die in an intensive care unit when I have no chance of coming back with tubes in and beepers going off and everybody's stressed. If I'm going to die, I want to die with loved ones around me. Now, again, that's my socioeconomic background. That's what I want. I'm not saying everybody wants that. But the point is we need to make whatever their views on their death able to come about. And one way is to put them down someplace where other people can look at them. And so the uh, life-sustaining treatment orders for end-of-life care are now can be part of personal health records. And some places like Oregon have that available electronically. So as the paramedics are coming to your house because someone called 911, they're looking up your uh, your stated goals for what you want done in case something really bad happens to you or that end event where you stop breathing, your heart stops pumping or whatever. What do you want done? And I think people would say, hey, I have a choice in this. And even though I can't speak right now, I've made my wishes clear earlier and I expect you to respect those. So 
But that's at the end of life. And not only does that bring about a death that you wanted and that, but it also means that you've taken that burden off your family. So they're not trying to say, gosh, what would Richard want? He told me he didn't, he didn't want anything extensive done if it was beyond hope. But uh, anyway, it takes a load off the family. And then also if family said, well, should we cover moms who don't have insurance, but are pregnant and do they get care or does um, um, someone who's uh, elderly has a, a, a known stage four cancer and is in their final days, should we pour more care into there? Again, I'm not trying to get into who lives and who dies. That's not my call. But society needs to have that conversation, say, where should we put the resources? If healthcare are 1% of gross domestic product, whatever, it's in the noise, but it's 20% and it's going to take everything on the table. I know I'm exaggerating, but it, it, it's in, inexorably going up and we've got to do something about that. And personal wishes have a lot to do for your personal comfort, your family's comfort, and financially, they have a lot there. And I think most people would prefer, many people would prefer to die at home, not everybody, than in a hospital intensive care unit. And I think personal health records, personal wishes, and my personal goals expressed in a record could be very helpful. Absolutely. And it's kind of difficult to actually have that conversation while it's happening. It needs to sure. be done at a time yes. when it's, it's, it's yeah. um, uh, yeah. when everyone is in the right, right. state of mind, right. you know, right. not worried about the future. But right. are we getting better at that? having that conversation it sounds like yeah. we are yeah there's societies out there that just work on getting uh end-of-life wishes out there there's a whole area of palliative medicine which is not just hospice care which is end-of-life care but palliative medicine applies uh to say has there been a significant change in health status that we reset our expectations because now that i have heart failure do I have different expectations about what treatment should produce? Treatment's not going to return me to my former football days or my former uh, soccer days or whatever it might be. So now I'm going to reset my expectations. And again, those are preferences based on the consumer, the patient having access to the data to the degree that they want. And I realize not everybody's going to want to get into the data, but many are. And those that want to, they want to be able to look at their data, compare it to what's on the Internet, sit down with their trusted provider and say, I'm looking at these data. Here's what I see. Doc, what do you think? Or nurse practitioner, what do you think? Help me make a decision. I'm, I'm leaning towards this way. And that's the shared decision making where everybody has access to data. Good decisions are made in advance. Uh, so you're not doing it in the heat of the moment when it's hard to make a good decision because now you're in the throes. So uh, health records are part of that, and we just need to make it easier for that to be part of the future. Absolutely. And if you consider the way that providers interact with medical records, I think that's an, a very important aspect of things. Right. Because, so you have patients, but they're dealing with the records you know, as they come, as they need them. Let's say they right. have an actual personal health record and they keep track right. with it. They're up to date. But right. the providers are kind of forced upon whatever existing EHRs they're using right. in their health system or how, right. whatever have you. So where that's going is that, as you pointed out, Ray, the uh, each provider uh, that's on electronic health record, somebody's providing that record. Either they're in a small private office or a solo office, or they're part of a large health system and they're doing office-based care as part of a large health system, and the health system provides the record. Either way, there's an electronic health record that's that facility's view of you. 
Now, if you're at a, a, a Kaiser Permanente facility or you're at a university system or, uh, or somewhere else that provides the full range of care and you never go outside that system, sure, that EHR is going to have most of your health care records. But I would say the bulk of the or a big part of the U.S. population is getting their care across multiple electronic health records. And we need the unit of analysis to be at the patient level. I mean, just look what's going on with the VA now. The VA well can't meet the need. Yeah. Yeah, I like how you said, it, you know, the patient should be the unit of analysis. And that's exactly right. right. Because then things will work the way we'd expect right. them to. And people will feel that their data actually is going to the right sources at the right time, as you're saying. So totally. Now, that puts a burden on personal health records, because uh, if you have a 15 minute with a provider and we can talk about whether that's the right length or not, but that's a typical scheduling and you come in and, and you've organized and you have all your records and it's, I don't know, a, a thousand page PDF file and a 15 minute visit. Yeah, that's not going to work for your new provider. So what we're counting on in the background of these personal health records, and they're not fully developed yet, is that over time, my records have come into my bank account, my health record bank account, and that a smart, perhaps blockchain-enabled personal health record provider has organized them so that my medication list is organized and clean and verified, my allergy list, if I have any, is there, my labs are organized by date and by time and by, uh, uh, by category, my images there, my personal health history is there, my family history, all organized so that you don't come in with a, a thousand page PDF that's unorganized and, hey, doc, it's your responsibility. Now, providers can say, don't want that. That puts too much. I'm not paid to spend five hours looking through your document. But if you say, did you ever have this medication? Boom. You go right into it and answer that question. Did they try this on you? Did you ever have a CT for this or that? Um, then with the help of computers going right to the data element, that's how they're going to be helpful. And presumably down the road, they will interact well with the provider's electronic health records because you don't want to come in with a, a wheelbarrow full of data and say, hey, make sense of this. I dare you. You want to have a personal health record that's working with the EHR vendors and providers in mind. And uh, you can look up something very carefully and specifically in a short period of time. So that's I'm making those presumptions that uh, may not be obvious to your listeners that that's what's going on in the background. No, I think it's good for you know the listeners to get a, that perspective because you do bring that um, yeah. fantastic medical health record, yeah. just knowledge, and you, right. you've shed lots of light upon uh, for me especially. And I, yeah. I, I kind of understood you know some of the things you said, but you explained it in a way that was so clear and yeah. easily digestible, and I'm able to uh, like really gather it in in the right order. So that's I appreciate that. Um, Good, right? There, there's one other thing that we should talk about yeah. about that, and and that is when we talk about the health record, we haven't examined it much on 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 this podcast. Um, when you look at the Android apps that get your record, or if you look at Apple Health, which gets your record, and and I've done it. Uh, I've downloaded my records from a couple of health systems and a and a in a private practice physician group. Uh, you're just getting just a small slice of all your records. What you're getting really is five or six or seven key fields. Uh, I can easily get my medication list, at least those that they've prescribed. I can get my um, allergy list, those that they asked me and they wrote it down and they got. I can get my immunization list, uh, those that they provided to me. Uh, I can get my um, uh, problem list, all my diagnoses. Symptoms or diagnoses. 
yeah, systems problems or uh, diagnoses over time. I can get my most recent vital signs, blood pressure, pulse, uh, right. that sort of thing. I can get my most recent lab work. If I had a cholesterol drawn or a blood sugar drawn, I can get that. Um, and then my smoking status. Well, I know my smoking status. But uh, anyway, you're getting those seven or so fields. But if you want to make use of the uh, all of us or the former precision medicine initiative, and let's say that you have a significant cancer, and now you have the genomics of that tumor, you're going to need a lot more to make that genomics valuable than just your, your blood pressure, your medications, your allergies, and your problem is. You're going to need all your health records, all your prior history, all your prior treatments, your response to that treatment. And that's not coming into Apple Health or the Android apps yet. So the challenge right now is that we have just the snippet of data that's now freely available in Apple Health and the Android apps. But we don't have access yet, not without a lot of trouble and some potential expense to get all of our records, especially the stuff that really counts, those long histories and physicals that doctors dictate when you come to the hospital or the emergency department note that describes your shape you're in after your auto accident or whatever, or your discharge summary, your operative note, or your delivery note, or your procedure note, or the consultation note when you saw the neurologist for weakness or numbness or whatever. Lots of detail there. You don't get those on your iPhone yet. So part of what Health Record Banking Alliance is doing is working with national parties and national experts to say, how can we bring all of those data under the control of the consumer so they have access to it? And, and that's where the edge of, of, of standards are right now. There's, uh, you can put all those data into standards, but they're not widely used right now. So do the providers, would they want this? I feel like there might be some sort of hesitations by the providers to be let the notes be available freely or not may i just i know that's my assumption for some reason but what do you think well we we've known and talked a lot about this so what's in it for the provider um i think that most uh, human providers i'm not talking about a health system i'm talking about a person that's doing care for another person they want the best for that patient um i think sometimes we get boxed into our u.s healthcare system where um, if I see the patient, then somebody else isn't seeing the patient or another health system isn't seeing the patient and health systems don't want to lose their patients to other providers or other health system because it's a competitive edge for them. And I think that there may be some aspect to hold on to their records so it's harder for them to go see a competing provider. That can't be any, in the future. And, and this administration clearly wants people to be able to shop for the best provider, even if it means going to a competitor across the street with your data. So, and that's what the information block that they're talking about in the 21st Century Cures Act. That's what that's speaking to. So you can't withhold someone's data so they can't easily go see another provider. So there are laws around that. So I think, though, that some providers are reluctant to yield the data because a health system might view that uh, they'll lose the patient if they do that. Well, I think we want that. If, if the person wants to go somewhere else because they think they can get better care, I think we all want the freedom of choice to do that. But it may hurt our bottom line, so then we have to up our game and do a better job keeping them involved. I think there's a, partly there, there's a providers that think, what are patients going to do with the, that information? That'll overwhelm them. Well, I think if you're overwhelmed, you're probably not going to look at your data. But if you are have the privilege of a great education and you are able to take care of yourself, you might be interested in your record. You might be interested in what's in your record and what's on the Internet saying, here's the newest research. Does it apply to me? So you're going to want your whole record. So the paternalistic view of, well, patients don't know what to do with their record. I don't think that has a place in 21st century care.
we've already talked about providers getting too much data and and there are ways to manage that with an organized personal health record uh, I think there's the medical legal risk um, that sometimes people worry that um, if they release their records, that doctors might be at risk of, of bad medical legal happenings. They might get sued more. I don't think the literature supports that. I think people sue because not only were they hurt, but they're angry. And often they're angry because the doctor was dismissive of them, didn't listen to them, while was uh, rude or unkind to them, and they're angry and they want to get back. But, um, I, and again, I'm not a malpractice expert, but I think if we look at the experience there, it's not just making a mistake because we're all going to make mistakes because we're human. That's why I entered the field of having computers help us. But also we make people angry uh, with our mistake. And then um, I think, but I don't think that giving people the records absent rudeness and absent making mistakes is going to raise the medical legal risk. Um, and I, so that's another thing that they're concerned about, but uh, I, I don't think that's where the issue is. I think we want an informed to the degree that people want to take charge of their healthcare. We want an informed consumer group uh, that knows their own preferences and can sit down and we can have a, a principled discussion and I can be of help to them and they go off happy. And I know I've done a good job as a provider. So, for a provider to start going into medical school and starting to, you know, their career in medicine, how much training do you think they're getting around this topic uh, regarding health care records and how they should be treated and the sh potential of sharing notes with other, you know, systems or other providers in order to get, you know, better results? Like, is that something that is communicated? <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that, uh, again, I'm not an expert on what's going on in medical schools right now, but my impression is, is that health uh, medical schools are spending more time training uh, providers of the future to be to have good interpersonal skills with patients, which means you establish eye contact, you're fully present with them. And you show them that you care. You demonstrate that you care. You're with them in your presence so that they know that you care because uh, they believe that produces the best outcome. And so in doing that, they're, they're using videos and sometimes with I know they're using bots um, on video to train to say uh, to respond to difficult uh, areas uh, asking someone about their sexual history or someone says that they're afraid of dying or someone uh, says anything else that could be significant. They're using videos and bots to train providers to be uh, more compassionate and more thoughtful about how what they're doing lands on the patient. Uh, are they being trained to use health records? Well, all medical students now right. in, in medical school, they're using health records as part of all their clinical training. Sure. So they're hip to that. I think we could do a lot more electronic health records to improve the user interface and make it less intrusive on the patient-provider interaction and make it more fun for uh, physicians to use. Right now, if I have, I'm just making this up, if I have 20 or 25 minutes allotted to a patient, meaning 15 minutes in the room with them and 10 or 15 minutes afterwards, uh, more than 50% of that is interacting with the computer. And that's not good. We don't, the computer is there to help healthcare, to help the patient, to provide a record, but we want most of that time spent human to human because that's where the healing can begin to occur, knowing that the computer is going to keep me from making a mistake in the background. So we've got a lot to do with health records to make them less intrusive and take less of the provider's time. And spending more than 50% of your patient time on a computer, that's not where we want to go. It's even higher in the hospital. During your work as a physician, as well as uh, someone who's looked at different technologies and medical record systems, how have you divided the different companies that are building these records? And 
Is there, do you have a preference? Yeah, I, I think what we've seen in the last uh, 20 years of electronic health records is, is the companies that have won out are those that have been able to handle the complete complexity of a health system, especially the inpatient system. And those companies that have won out are now at the top of the market share are those that have modules that cover all aspect of inpatient and hospital facility care. The emergency department, the operating room, the pharmacy, the intensive care unit, the regular medical surgical floor. They handle the ordering, the documentation, the billing, the management of the x-rays and x-ray reports. Before we had niche system, one for the emergency department, one for the ICU, one for pharmacy, one for the operating room. And then we tried to knit them together. That didn't work. And so the dominant electronic health record vendors now have shown that they can cover all of that and, and plus the ambulatory care as well. So that's what's won out. And I think that's justified. Healthcare is very complex and we don't want things being dropped by systems trying to send uh, things back and forth within a hospital system. That said, I think they all struggle in that for at least for physicians. And here I'm speaking specifically to physicians. They're not as intuitive. There's too much variation in how the screen presents things. Sometimes the screen is illogical. And we're also, because of the billing system, we're asking doctors to click and type in too much of the data. Uh, in the past, doctors would see a patient in the office and then you'd leave the room and they'd go to their office and they dictate uh, a two, three, four, five minute note to their recorder and a transcriptionist would type it overnight and appear in their record the next day. I think most doctors would prefer to go back that right now we're asking them to click on things and it's taking too much of the time and it's burning them out. So there's a lot of literature on electronic health records counting burnout in physicians. And I think that although the electronic health records that have won manage the complexity of the hospital, now they need to start working on the computer user interface and, and take that burden off of doctors. Because we have the people that are the most highly trained, the most highly paid, doing a lot of the um, the, the detailed data entry work, a data entry clerk, and that's not smart for society. It creates burnout for physicians and it interferes with doctors and providers inter uh, interacting with patients. So we got a lot of work in that area. I, I totally agree. And I think one of the reasons I got into, you know, this topic of blockchain and healthcare myself is I personally saw the inability for, you know, healthcare organizations or, you know, hospitals to manage their accounts receivables and billing, insurance, managing the contracts between different insurance companies and different types of patients, and then which patients are actually attending uh, or, you know, getting service in one hospital that might be associated with another hospital that have different contracts, and there's all that complexity involved. And I think that's, in my opinion, where blockchain can provide more transparency and Yes, I agree. And we can be optimistic about the future of healthcare. Uh, we need to keep in mind that uh, we have a capitalistic health system in this in this country for at least half of it. Medi uh, the government pays more than 50 percent of care across Medicare, Medicaid and Department of Defense, the VA uh, and the Indian Health Service. They pay for more than half the care. But um, we got to remember that if we cut costs out of health system, we're cutting someone else's income, some company's income and their employees income. And so there are entrenched interests that keep healthcare spending where it is. But same point, society needs to say up and say enough already. We need roads. We need schools. We need bridges. We need parks. We need education. We need safe water, safe environment. Uh, we need uh, uh, fire departments. We need police departments. We need a just society. We can't spend all of our money on health care. And I think health records, I think block chain can help with that but boy it's a long road currently what are some of your concerns regarding 
the adoption of blockchain or rather why it's possible blockchain might not be necessarily part of the future of healthcare. Well, I think blockchain will be part of the future of healthcare, but but in the end, it's 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 just a technology, um, and it can be used for good. It can be used for ill. Uh, I think that we just have a lot bigger issues than just the technology of so, blockchain to address in healthcare. So I think one of the major issues or the patterns that I've seen, not just in healthcare but overall, is this lack of trust and the requirement right. of some sort of intermediary to really balance out both parties and help ensure that whatever transaction they're trying to accomplish, whether it being, you know, checking my records or, you know, providing some sort of medical services, you can, how I see blockchain is that it is a layer of trust as the internet. So for me, the internet, it provided people the ability to share words, share pictures, videos, ideas, messages, create this whole community where people can share their you know hopes and dreams and all of that but you know what's true or not didn't really matter at that point at least you, you couldn't really tell what's true or not um and that's getting you know there's fluctuations in how that goes but that's not the point the point is can we build do you think it's possible to actually build a layer of trust without using a technology or is that something that's more dependent on the human interaction is it always going to be human dependent for me i think blockchain it's most effective for an AI system. We are still going to need that dependence on humanity to believe the person that we're seeing. You know, we still need that aspect, but blockchain creates a layer of trust outside yeah. of, yeah. Interesting. Uh, the way I would respond to that, Ray, is that if you talk to people that don't know what blockchain is, yeah. you've got some explaining to do. And it's I wouldn't say it's the easiest thing in the world to explain. I get the idea of a generalized public ledger. I get all that. But the question of should I trust it or not? I think it's easier for people to trust a name and a brand. Again, this is not a knock against blockchain. I'm just saying that in general, that there it's easier for people to trust a brand. For example, they've looked at uh, who wants to... Uh, are people comfortable with Google, Amazon, and Apple storing their health records? And... Um, We'll have to witness what goes on, but people can trust a brand because of the way that the company acts. I think Apple, and again, I'm not trying to promote Apple. What I'm saying is they're, they're the most valuable company by um, by um, market, not market share, by uh, the value based on their stock, uh, most valuable company in the world. And they've been pretty explicit about saying you're in control of your data. Um and people trust that and, and they built a brand that people trust and then tells that Apple does something, if they ever do, that diminishes that trust. People trust that brand. I don't think they know how Apple technology works, but they trust it because they haven't read anything that would cause them to distrust. Blockchain, it could get there. And you and I understand why blockchain can be trustable, but it's a complex technology um, and I think you. I still think someone's going to have to stand behind and say, we use blockchain. And, oh, by the way, our name is First Health or our name is um, right. uh, Johnson & Johnson Health or whatever. But they're, they're going to have to trust someone who uses that this is good. And then they're going to have to keep watching it and have the press watch and say, are we having any problems there? So just saying that as blockchain doesn't promote trust, I think people using it over the end. Trust takes years to build and a second to lose. I mean, we all know that. That's true in personal interactions. That's true with companies. And that's what the brand means. So and 
uh, I think brand has a lot to do here. So I think if brands use blockchain uh, and build that level of trust, but they're going to have to be, there's a lot more in blockchain. They have to be absolutely transparent about their privacy policy. And yes. that's actually the next thing that health record banking line is going to look at is privacy policy of personnel of record companies. It's, um, it's not top of mind right now. What would you say to people in the space right now getting started trying to build a either a company or organization and help with one of these massive problems that we're seeing in healthcare or improve the way that people are able to access their records? I think by being pretty close to the consumer and what consumers feel are necessary. The challenge with that is that, uh, again, with uh, Steve Jobs is that I don't think people knew they wanted a touchscreen until a touchscreen on a phone was embedded. And people go, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. So you can't always ask consumers, what do you want? And then build it. And they either say, I don't want that or I want something better that you haven't come up with. So there's always that issue of trying to predict what consumers are going to want. But but there are plenty of problems to challenge in healthcare. And I like companies that solve fundamental problems. And one fundamental problem is uh, there's lots of fundamental problems in healthcare. How do I get my entire medical history organized in a way that my provider can come up to speed with me very quickly and make sure a diagnosis is never missed? And so that means extracting my history, sort of like 23andMe does. They ask you pages and pages and pages of questions about any particular set of diagnoses, and they give medals out, and that could be a blockchain token that they give out. Um, for answering questions like you said you ever had a rash or you ever had asthma then they ask you 20 minutes of questions about that it's that kind of detailed history that can provide this uh, uh, this digitized record of who I am and what I might be at risk for I think there's a whole thing about transparency well if I go get a blood test how much am I personally going to have to pay for it and uh, can I, if I want to get a new, uh, if I get a new drug prescribed to me, where's my copay going to be the least? I mean, there's so much lack of transparency in healthcare that these apps could go after that. Um, uh, so, uh, and there's a lot of, well, what did the person just say about what I should do at home? So there's a whole thing of medical education right. and how do I do the best home care and how do I take care of myself? This whole thing of when do I need to get somebody else to help me or with my daughter who has a fever or when I have a rash or I have a headache or I have back pain, when do I need to be seen? Do all that. There's a whole bit around telemedicine. So there's all these apps that have fundamental problems they need to solve. And uh, early stage companies take a risk because it's not clear how to handle it. And uh, some companies win and many will not win. And, and the world goes on. So I, I believe in this in, the, in this environment. I just think we need to move to uh, an idea where everybody has health care. It, it, it's affordable in some way to society at large. And I think that having health records uh, can help bring down that cost over time. But it needs a lot of people playing together for that. Hopefully our listeners get a better idea of why health medical records are actually that important. I know that, you know, we talk about, all right, try to spend time talking about the blockchain a little bit. And, um, and I know that you're not an expert, but I think that you gave great examples of how blockchain can be used. And I think that's kind of the message I wanted to hear from someone who, you know, who might not be an expert, but is an expert in medical records. And now there's like some validation as why people, mm -hmm. you know, have an understanding of how it can be used. So thank you for doing that. I think that another area that we didn't really talk about that blockchain could play a part in, it's this idea of if we're going to have secure health records, we need to make sure that people, consumers, patients are correctly identified. And this country for the last 20 years, it says we're not going to have a national patient identifier. Uh, Social security number has been used for that purpose, but 
Uh, a lot of people push back on that because it's too easy to lose that number or lose control of that number. Medicare now is moving off of use in Social Security and will have a random uh, number that will be used for Medicare accounts going forward. But still there's the issue, if I go to a different state or a different health system in the same state, how do you know that it's, it's the same Richard Gibson? I've got a pretty common first name and a common last name. How do you know it's the right person? Well, uh, blockchain can offer a patient identity based uh, based on interactions I've had with many other companies. Are you the person that has uh, uh, such and such a computer or such and such a browser? Are you the person that used your phone to reach out to your uh, county library? Uh, and, and so blockchain can provide patient identification in the absence of a national uh, patient identifier, which a lot of people are opposed to. And that's a whole different discussion about national patient identifier, but blockchain could play a part there too. Uh, that's kind of interesting though. Do you think that having a national patient identifier would that intrude on our privacy and well because i feel like there it's it's already something that exists you have as you said yeah. social security it's the same thing in, in my view like how is it different is it more validated for for some reason i think a national patient identifier would be very helpful to have i know there are people that are concerned with uh, your own personal data but uh so everything needs to go hand in hand but by that what i mean is if if we look to estonia they do their entire government online because they, they left the Soviet Union in 1991. All their government structure went away. They had to recreate it and they recreated it, not quite on blockchain, but there's a lot of similarities with what Estonia is doing uh, with blockchain. But but and the people there, they trust their government, which is which is an interesting concept, isn't yeah. it? But the, the point is they do everything with the government online except for marriage and selling real estate. Everything else is online. Everybody's got a digital ID that you either have on a physical card or you have it on a mobile phone app. And if you lose it, you have to show up someplace and prove that you are who you say you are and you get a new ID. But once you have that, then the counterbalance for the state having all that information is you can go on and you can see everybody who's accessed either your health care account or your administrative or your tax account or your police account or whatever it turns out to be. You can see all of that. And so wherever they collect data, anybody that collects data, private company or government, I think the balancing force is you can go online, see what data they have, all the data that they have right. on you, and then who's seen it. And if you're promoting that transparency and people know that someone can look at that, then that keeps everybody playing, playing together. So that's how I think you balance it. If you want to have a national patient identifier, that's great. But show me all the data you have on me, companies and governments, and allow me to see who's looked at it and allow me to retract or delete my data um, or whatever. Then I think that we can get the benefits of a national patient identifier without uh, have, and, and have it balanced with everything's a balance. Right. The most secure data are those that are uh, on a computer that's not connected to the inter uh, Internet, never turned on. But it's not very useful either. So we got to balance it. And transparency is, is, I think, the way to do that balance. Yeah, exactly. And it's really interesting. You, you know, bring up Estonia. They are using blockchain for their political process and their voting, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, operations. So that's really it's interesting how some governments or countries can sort of leapfrog us with technology. And I feel like it's oh, sure. happening with uh, blockchain pretty quickly because I know that, yeah. you know, lots of projects going on in Africa as well as the Middle East and uh, China, uh, you know, they're big on blockchain. So we'll see what happens. I think that, you know, obviously America is very resilient and I believe, you know, we have a lot, a lot invested in this uh, space, both in medical records. I think that we're starting to get there. You know, if you compare, you know, looking at other countries, what are they using? Do you think that their medical record systems are 
much better or is it similar? Well, if we if the unit analysis is providers in their offices or health systems of uh, the U.S. now with the most recent uh, bout of federal spending of 40 billion dollars of federal money in the last 10 years, we're we're largely at the top of both the office medical record and the health system medical record. But um, in terms of widespread deployment, um, uh the other people that have been working in the office setting for a lot longer to wit, um, well, some of the European countries and all. And uh, so Estonia has a personal health record. Finland has a personal health record. Wales is working on a personal health record. Australia is working on a personal health record. I'm sure there are many others, but I know those countries are doing a lot more in the personal health record space than we are in the U.S. Is this sponsored um, by the government or is this something that like a company within Estonia or Finland are building and then they're. No, I think these are all either government or uh, government, oh. quasi-government organizations. Yeah, I see. Okay. In fact, our, our meeting this week uh, or next week, uh, the Health Record Banking Alliance, uh, we're having uh, a doctor from Finland who developed uh, the Finland Personal Health Record speak to us. So we try and learn from other societies that have done this and what are the pros and cons about having a personal health record. And of course, you're always balancing privacy with the value of the data. Paradoxically, in Europe, they're more concerned about uh, security and privacy of data than I think we are in the U.S., uh, to, to wit, the general data protection regulations. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how U.S. companies respond to GDPR, particularly personal health records and uh, Apple Health and all, and all the rest. So, uh, Right. Our, our... Very recently, I received, you know, dozens of emails from different accounts that I've had on the Internet telling yes, me about, about the updates for GDPR. Dozens. I understand the purpose of legalese, and legalese serves our legal system and, and cre can create a little more certainty there. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but... Can you explain that a little point, bit? Legalese? Well, what I mean, if you go re read the privacy um, regulation, or not the, pri the privacy statements of companies like your internet service provider or, or your, your browser provider, I mean, it goes on Any for app, pages. right. And, well. and it's all part of the user agreement that you sign before you use the app. Well, of course, no one reads that except for the people that wrote it. And so they're using legal terms and legal descriptions, which serve a purpose. I'm not saying that legal sure. legalese isn't useful. It's just that there needs to be the legalese, perhaps. And there also needs to be a regular consumer in our country, English translation of what those privacy regulations are. Who are you giving the data to? And will I know? Um, and that paired with transparency, which we don't have now, mm -hmm. um, about how much data do you have on me? Well, I didn't know you had that. Well, if that's be the case, I want to turn off that section. So there are some things you can control about setting your data data defaults. And I think people need to own up to that and spend more time with that. But right now it's buried. And right now you don't know what happens to your data. So what I'm trying to say, Ray, is I think there's a way to write a privacy policy without uh, burying it in legalese that no one can read. Um, you just have the, the, the cogent term that labels each paragraph. Here's what this paragraph is. Here's what it means. And then you have other organizations that rate it based on transparency and fairness and, uh, and completeness. I agree. And then you can also have the consumers and users also be rating it with the amount of right. you know, with some sort of star rating. It's a very exactly. simple thing to it's right. when people, you know, don't, you don't need to really complicate it so much. People right. just want to give a thumbs up sometimes. And that's right. enough data to generate trust or to build new networks and systems. So it's uh, really cool that this is happening. Uh, again, thank you so much for joining yeah. the podcast.
Yeah, th thank you, Ray, and thank you, Health Unchained, for inviting me. And uh, I look forward to future conversations, and uh, I'm glad to be part of this. Thank you very much. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.